Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph, filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. This hour, we're talking about housing, evictions to be specific. Here in Connecticut, twice as many tenants face evictions during the pandemic, not for falling behind on rent, but because their lease was up. They're called no-fault evictions, and some believe the uptick is due to a loophole in an executive order. Today, we're exploring what they are, how they happened, and what lawmakers say they're going to do about it. During this hour, we'll hear from Sanchere Owens, who was threatened with a no-fault eviction. Later, State Representative Quentin Williams joins us. We'll also be joined by housing reporter Camila Vajejo and investigative reporter Jackie Rape Thomas. But first, what is a no-fault eviction and how does it affect people? Here's housing reporter Camila Vajejo. Sanchere Owens has been living in a crowded hotel in an industrial park in Hartford for six months. She's there with her boyfriend, two dogs, and a noisy air conditioner. She left her last home after she was threatened with an eviction. With nowhere to turn, it was between a shelter or a hotel. She chose the latter. I can't even, don't want to put the TV too loud or listen to music too loud. And um, it's just not my space, so it's, it's weird and uncomfortable. And she can't afford it. She says she struggles to pay the $90 per night. But she also couldn't afford an eviction, ruining her chances of finding another place to rent. The threat of the eviction, um, it just made me so anxious. And I didn't even know how bad, like, an eviction was, honestly, until going through this process. Owen says there were rodents and no hot water in the unit she was paying $900 a month to rent. When she complained to her landlord to get the issues fixed... She says her landlord threatened to evict on the grounds that her lease had expired. He's like, I'm going to start paperwork for eviction. Like, so I would just left. But not everyone in Owen's shoes has the option to leave. An analysis by Connecticut Public Radio found many more people face so-called no-fault evictions during the pandemic. While people usually face eviction for non-payment of rent or nuisance, these no-fault evictions are for reasons like the lease had expired or the landlord wanted to live there themselves. Before the pandemic, one out of every four people in housing court were facing one of these evictions. Now, it's one in two. In housing court in Waterbury, these no-fault evictions are taking up a growing share of the caseload. The technical term is... Lapse of time. Lapse of time. Lapse of time. Catherine Freeman is a legal aid lawyer in Waterbury, and during the pandemic, an increasing number of her clients faced no-fault evictions. Many housing advocates blame a pandemic emergency executive order that pushed landlords to apply to the state's rental assistance program, Unite CT. The order aimed to put a pause on evictions for non-payment of rent. Landlords, through their attorneys, believed that if they did lapse of time evictions, that they could avoid participating in the United CT program. All of this during a tough housing market. Data tracked by the state shows rent is up by 15 percent, and far fewer units are available to rent. 
a lot of our clients haven't been able to move. They just are kind of in place. And Freeman says having an eviction pending hurts the housing search. The doors are closed to them as soon as it's discovered that they have a pending um, eviction. Margaret is one of those renters who's having doors closed on her. She's asked us to not use her real name because she fears retaliation from her current landlord. She raised concerns about her basement flooding and fridge not working. Her landlord filed a no-fault eviction shortly after because her lease was up. She begged her not to. She says she just needed more time to find another place. If owners are looking at looking me up, they're going to see an eviction pending. I said this is messing up everything, and you're making it harder to get me out of here. Margaret worries homelessness might be in the near future for her. I think up all that all the time. Where would I go? Where would I do? Where would my children go? I don't really have family. Help may be on the way for these two women and many more. Connecticut lawmakers are considering a bill that would ban no-fault evictions in larger apartment buildings. If approved, Connecticut would be among the first states to provide such protections against no-fault evictions. State Representative Quentin Williams is the co-chair of the legislature's housing committee. He recently named it a top priority. We're going to make sure that there's protections so that to be evicted, there should be just cause. If approved, the change wouldn't go into effect until October. Back at Super 8 Hotel in Hartford, Owens doesn't know how much longer she'll be able to pay the nightly bill. It's like the most miserable situation I've ever been in. The dogs, we all in this little tight space, it feels so dirty all the time. Owens says she's applied to dozens of apartments and they've all ended in denial. Despite that, her wish remains the same finding an affordable place for her and her family. Camila Vallejo, Connecticut Public Radio. Joining us now live is Sancho Ray Owens, who you just heard in that story. Jackie Rabe Thomas and Camila Vallejo also join us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Walter. Good morning. So, Sancho Ray, we heard a little bit about your story. You were threatened with a no-fault eviction. What was that like? Describe your feelings to us. Um, it was mostly just frustrating. Um, I knew it wasn't right, but also I felt like I had no control over it. Right. So, Sancho Ray, uh, tell us about your process in trying to find housing. I understand you've been living in hotels for seven months. What are the barriers standing in the way? The application fees are a lot. Mostly if the application fee was like 50 and up, I wouldn't even apply for the apartment. Um, a lot of places... Your credit score, my credit wasn't too bad. I mean, my credit is bad. They want you to have like a 750 and up. Mine was like below 500. I'm working on it. Um, also, um, no pets allowed. And uh, finding something in my budget was very hard as well. Right. So you have to apply to these different places. It sounds like it's $50 per application. And also you have to have a security deposit, right? Yes. Gotcha. So Jackie and Camila, you both cover housing. What's the market like right now for renters? What are you hearing? Yeah, so the market right now is uh, really tough for renters. Uh, For starters, rents are up by over 15% year over year. So that could be more than a $200 increase on what renters usually pay. And then on the other hand, vacancy rates are really low. Uh, what that means is that there's just not enough units on the market for renters looking for other places. All of that on top of what Sanjay just mentioned, that, um, you know, landlords are, be, are are 
have are, have, are having more requirements right now, uh, whether it's just increasing their application fees or they want more security deposits um, or, you know, any of the other things that she mentioned is really what, uh, you know, a lot of renters are facing across Connecticut. Right. Jackie, what are you hearing? Yeah, so... Um... You know, everything that Camila and Sanchere mentioned, as well as, um, you know, there's there's been an in, influx of people who have been moving to Connecticut um, and taking up some more housing that um, so that that has led to those low vacancy rates, as well as um, older populations are staying in their homes longer or staying in their apartments longer um, rather than. Um, in the past, going to assisted living facilities or nursing homes, um, you know, we um, I've heard and I'm sure others have heard about the impact that COVID has had on nursing homes. And at the same time, um, first-time homeowners, because of escalating homeownership costs to enter the market, um, more people are struggling to purchase their first home. And so those folks are remaining in their rental units. And so the market is really just sort of frozen right now, um, which is driving rent prices to increase as well as vacancy rates to stay really low. Right. Sancha Ray, uh, there are supposed to be safety nets like Unite CT to help people find housing. Um, are those safety nets not working for you, those programs? No, I actually, um, I, I don't know if I tried Unite CT. I don't know if I tried those, but I tried CRT, um, my sister's place. Um, I did the Laramie Fund. Um I tried journey housing. I tried going to the mayor office and none of those, all of those was a flop. I'm not saying that they're a flop for everyone, but um, the process is too tedious. You have to chase people down. Um, the process is really degrading. So I, I, I stopped. The last people I tried to work with was um, he has on Hartford and CRT. And actually my CRT appointment is today. This is the second time I'll um, be applying with them. And hands on Hartford, which is, it was um, so tedious. So they want you to, um, before you even apply to get help, you have to find an apartment and it's cool. And then you have to, um, already, you have to already put half of the security deposit down before they even consider helping you. And it was like, well, I'm asking you for help. Like I'm, I'm trying to get, I just got the uh, like apartment approval and now I got to come up with $800 to even consider you helping me. And, and it's like, I, that we can't even do the application until you have the $800 to pay for the apartment. So I thought it was like damn near impossible to get people to get help with them. Yeah. I imagine it's very frustrating going through this process. Um, Jackie and Camila, you mentioned in the story that some advocates in this story are calling this a loophole, these no-fault evictions. Um, Camila, can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So during the pandemic, uh, Governor Ned Lamont put some protections in place to try to keep people or to try to keep as many people housed. Um, so first it was the state <clears throat> eviction moratorium, and then it was the executive order 12D. Um, and what that executive order did was 
push landlords to apply to the state's rental assistance program, UniteCT, before filing an eviction in court. Um, and what UniteCT uh, really did is um, give up to 15,000 um, to tenants who had arrearages uh, during the pandemic and who were impacted during the pandemic, whether it be that they lost their job, they lost their hours, et cetera. Um, and the aim of Executive Order 12D um, was to put a pause on evictions for non-payment of rent, which tend to take up the most share in housing court. Uh, but some landlords didn't want to participate in that program for a variety of reasons, whether it didn't cover all the background or they simply wanted the tenant to leave. So what we've been told by advocates is that many landlords were advised by their, by their lawyers to just file a no-fault eviction to avoid that UNICT requirement. Gotcha. So, Sancha Ray, um, you do a lot of community activism um, and you work with people in similar situations um, as, as yourself. Do you see a way out for yourself and the people you work with? Yes. Yes, it's just um, it's just harder. And um, right, I think because we live in a white supremacist time, um, it's more impossible for people like me to get to where we need to go because of all of the roadblocks and the lack of privilege we have. But I do see a way out. How does that play into that 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 lack of privilege you just mentioned? Well, because. Um, when you're, so when we were, um, forced to move so drastically, like we didn't, I didn't have like thousands of dollars saved up to be okay. You know, like I didn't have thousands of dollars to just go and just get a new apartment. I didn't, I was, I, I wasn't blessed with, um, no good credit because of, um, being poor and, um, going to college and paying it for myself and not having parents to help me um, so that it made it harder for me to even make maintain a good credit. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, other obvious reasons, but it's so obvious. That I don't even think I need to talk about why um, having lack of privilege in the United States will um or just being not a white person in the United States will mess you up tremendously and well, be a successful in life. Well, a study from Connecticut Fair Housing did find that black renters are twice as likely to face eviction. I know you work with folks who are um, unhoused as well. Are you finding that to be true? Yes. Okay. Yes. And also these people that are like these landlords, they don't care. They don't, they have, they don't have no empathy. You know, they don't care about you being black and poor or things being harder for you. Okay. They just want their money. Sandra, what do you need legislators to do? Um, Stop making it so impossible for people to get help. I know for a fact that there was like so much money going around, especially for housing during this pandemic. And everyone I know that I get, I send to get help or like, oh, I heard, I know this resource, um, call them and the people don't get help. Like we need to know legislators need to tell us where the money is going. Um and they make it, they need to make it more easy for people to access it that really need it. Um and I know a lot of legislators think that people are just trying to freeload and just get money and 
a lot of people think that um, poor black people is just on drugs, but that's not the case. I know a lot of people that are really struggling out here. Would direct help work if, you know, if, if you were able to get uh, a security deposit paid up front or the application fees waived? Um, would that direct help? help would help, yeah. It's not enough, like, it's literally so hard. Like, there's no, I couldn't get, like, a Section 8 waiver. It's like, it was no help for me. And obviously, I'm a single, well, I'm not single, but I don't have kids and I have dependents. So it's, it's harder. <laughs> and then they want, even when you call 211, if you're not staying outside or if you're not in the shelter, they don't care. They don't care. They thought I was good because I could afford to stay in a hotel, you know. That's like a blessing. Um, I know, and not everyone that's going through what I went through could stay in a hotel, but I still, I still was broke as hell because the hotel was like, what, 80 a night? Right. Well, we hope that you find a solution to your situation. I did. I actually moved into my place yesterday. Oh, you moved into your place yesterday? Yeah, I want no help from any of those outlets that's supposed to be there to help me um i moved in just help from myself my job and um some friends um and that's why i was so tired because i was like i hurried out the hotel (laughs) um and i'm going to crt today to get help with my first month rent um since they couldn't help me with my um security deposit i think that's the least they can try to do well, we're glad to hear that you uh, found a, a solution to your situation. Santare, thank you so much for joining us. Camila, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, from Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph filling in for Lucy Nopithanchel. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph filling in for Lucy Nopithanchel. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. This hour, we're talking about housing issues, including no-fault evictions. Investigative reporter Jackie Rabe Thomas and housing reporter Camila Vajejo recently reported that no-fault evictions are on the rise. Before the pandemic, one out of every four people in housing court were facing a no-fault eviction. But now, it's one in two. Housing advocates and lawmakers are now working to come up with solutions to limit the number of no-fault evictions. Joining us now is Jackie Rabe Thomas, who talked to a number of housing advocates and lawmakers to get their take. Good morning, Jackie. Hello. So in our last segment, we heard from Sancho Ray, uh, who was threatened with a no-fault eviction. I understand, you know, having these on your record is like having a scarlet E. Yeah. So, you know, when landlords go to screen potential applicants or potential tenants, they look to see, you know, do they have an eviction on their record um, to to measure risk of, is that going to happen to me? Am I going to be able to pay my mortgage um, if someone stops paying rent? And so um, what has been happening is that a lot of people, um, 
ultimately have these eviction filings withdrawn in court or have them dismissed. So they are never found at fault by the court, but they're still living on the judicial branch's website um, for quite some time. And even if it does go all the way to trial or and and is heard by a judge, um, it stays on there for three years. And so um, regardless of the outcome of that case. And so when what you hear when you talk to person after person who's been through one of these eviction filings is that even though they weren't found at fault, it's still being used against them. Right. And so I understand that, uh, you know, some are calling for solutions so that these don't follow people around. You spoke to Giovanna Shea, who is the litigation and advocacy director from Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. We just hear from many, many people that they're unable to get rental housing. And it's because their name shows up on the judicial branch website or in the database of a tenant screening company that purchased judicial branch data. And it may be a case that was dismissed or withdrawn or in which they entered into an agreement with the landlord. It may be a case based on lapse of time um, in which they were not at fault. And so right now, withdrawals and dismissals may be destroyed after one year. And then for judgments on the merits, whether the landlord or tenant wins, they remain on the judicial branch website in summary process action for three years. If a tenant wins, that remains on the judicial branch website and potentially sold to commercial purchasers for three years. So the statute and our proposal were... For dismissals, withdrawals, and judgments for the tenant, for the defendant, for them, the records to be removed within 30 days. Judgments for the landlord, for the plaintiff, the period they're on the judicial branch would be shortened from three years to one year under our proposal. And also, our proposal seeks to require that commercial purchasers do not disclose records which have been removed from the judicial branch website, commercial purchasers of bulk data. There's a real disparity by race and gender in terms of eviction filings and the fact that these records are sold to bulk purchasers, to credit bureaus, to tenant screening companies, and remain on the judicial branch website so much longer regardless of um, the cause of the eviction that really can affect families' economic stability and the stability of their housing. That was Giovanna Shea with Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Jackie, do you think the legislature will act on a plan like this? So it remains to be seen. Um, They had a similar bill last year um, that did not cross the finish line. Um, There is the option to go to the judicial branch and have them change their rules. Um, Housing advocates have been pressing them and have formally requested them to make that change of that would change how this information is displayed on the judicial branch's website, which they have the authority to make those rules around, as well as um, when they sell this data to tenant screening companies, um, how they are allowed to use it. Right. So only only a few weeks left if they're going to actually act on this. Yeah, they have until May 4th. 
Okay. You also spoke to Bob DeCosmo. He's the manager of Tenant Tracks. He's also a landlord. Tenant Tracks is a screening service, uh, tenant screening service in Connecticut that uses uh, some of this data. Let's take a listen to what uh, Bob had to say for the landlord's perspective. No-fault evictions or the lapse of time evictions an essential tool. You have a tenant that's being disruptive in a property, and other tenants are not always willing to come forward and testify against a tenant that lives in the same building. They rely on the owner to take the matter and, and dispose of the tenant. The true victim of an eviction is not a tenant. It's the landlord who had his contract broken. They broke their agreement. It's the landlord that's the one that's, that's suffering because of the eviction. People don't get up and say, I'm going to evict someone today because the margins are so close when it comes to the actual operation of the properties. When the tenant moves out, you're, you know, you're in there, you're changing carpets, you're replacing cabinets, flooring, painting, locks, repairs, thousands of dollars. We don't show those eviction records as tenant tracks. We, we truncate those. The only uh, evictions that we show as a consumer reporting agency is judgments for plaintiff because you don't want somebody that you know, may have gone to court and then won the case. And and using that, it would be prejudicial to, to show that evictions. It's my belief that the vast majority of, of tenant screening companies do not show records for evictions that went in favor of the defendant or cases that were withdrawn. I do have a huge problem with limiting eviction records to one year. It basically gives every tenant in Connecticut an opportunity to live rent-free every other year. Concealing true eviction histories, the consequences, landlords are going to raise rents because they are going to perceive risk. Um, other things have popped up like, you know, creating, um, we call them aardvark lists where landlords get together and create these secret lists. And basically it's a blacklist and tenants don't have any recourse to get those names, their names off of those types of lists, which will be be done. People will start to use subjective information for screening. The more the government tries to interfere or regulate with really what should be a fair market kind of a process, the worse it becomes. Sounds like there would be a black market if, if this happens. Um, is there anything fair housing can can do about that, Jackie? Yeah, so there's a, you know, a few avenues that are being considered at the state capitol. Um, one is to, you know, seal these records um, after for the cases that are withdrawn in that shorter window that we already talked about, um, which has been done in, in eight other states, including some conservative states like Nevada and Wisconsin. Um, but in addition to that, the legislature is considering a bill that would ban no-fault evictions, these evictions of, of requiring people to be out of their units because their um, lease has expired, um, that would be for larger units, so units that have apartment buildings that have at least five units. So we're not talking about your mom-pa landlords. We're talking about, you know, your larger landlords in the state. Um, and so that's something currently under consideration. Right. There's also lawsuits going on around the country to prevent how tenant screening companies are or are not allowed to use this data as well, including in Connecticut right now. There's a trial underway regarding that. Gotcha. And speaking of fair housing, you spoke to Erin Kimple, who's the executive director of Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. 
landlords would want you to believe that because it's about property rights, then due process should take a back seat. I think it should actually be the opposite. Because you're taking away someone's place to live, because you are impacting not just, you know, this person's life today, but possibly their ability to get housing in the future, that is the reason why there should be more process rather than less process. The eviction tsunami that all of the housing advocates have been predicting is here. It's happening this month. We've had an average of 119 cases filed every workday. What we're hearing is that the reason landlords are evicting for no cause is because they believe that they can get more rent. And I think that's the majority of what's going on. What the Fair Rent Commissions can do is look at those rent increases and decide if they're unconscionable. So if someone is paying, for instance, $1,000 a month, and then their rent goes up by 50% to $1,500 a month, the Fair Rent Commission could look at that and say, that's unconscionable because you don't, you landlord don't have a reason or a explanation for why you increase the rents that much. You didn't do work to the property. You didn't, you can't show that your costs went up by 50%. So I'm going to say the rent commission can say no to that. So this is really the only way that a tenant can try to control costs in their units. And we do have an affordable housing problem. And this is one way to keep the housing that is currently in existence affordable. By the calling it a fair rent commission, it allows tenants to protest a rent increase or request a rent decrease. So when I moved in, I agreed to pay $500 a month. But since moving in, the ceiling fell in and a rat fell on my head. I don't think I should have to pay $500 anymore. I want the fair rent commission to tell my landlord to reduce my rent to $300. So fair rent commissions, Jackie, I understand that we have a few in Connecticut right now. Yeah, so in Connecticut, it allows every municipality right now, state law allows every municipality to have a fair rent commission, um, but only 25 towns currently do have those places like New Haven and Hartford and Stamford, um, but as well as suburban and, and rural communities as well, like Farmington, New, Newington, Colchester, Westbrook. Um, and what legislation would do that's um, being considered is would require every municipality to have these commissions so that, um, you know, since rent increases are, you know, on average 50 or not rent increases, but the price to um, rent a place in Connecticut is up 15 percent since before the pandemic. Um, you know, this would help control some of those costs. Right. And so 169 municipalities we know we have in Connecticut. So 25 have them. Long way to go. Uh, This legislation, where does it stand right now? So um, it was voted out of committee and it has until it has just under three weeks to make it across the finish line. This would require legislation in order to require municipalities to participate. Every municipality can set this up on their own, though, already. Gotcha. So the legislature, they a uh, couple of housing uh, proposals that are on the table that they need to act on if they're, if they're going to uh, 
to pass it this session. Uh, we also, you also talked to an economics professor from University of Connecticut. We don't have time to play the full soundbite, but uh, he talked a little bit about saying that you, you know, uh, Connecticut's in a unique situation because of the makeup of the state um, and the reason why you know the housing supply is so low and why we're having a problem. Talk a little bit about that, Jackie. Yeah, so um, he spoke about how really, so this is Professor John Glasscock. He is in charge of um, the University of Connecticut School of Business real estate um, program. Um, And what he mentioned was that, you know, right now we're a very married state. So we have one of the highest rates of people who are married. We also have one of the highest rates of people who are homeowners. And so um, there's this perceived threat about what apartments and rentals do to your community if they are allowed to open. And so um, this really gets to, and specifically what it will do to your schools um, in those communities and the cost burden that people believe that will pay on play on their schools. Um, you know, there is research that shows that um, multifamily housing does not generate um, more um, children for your schools than, you know, single family homes. Single family homes are typically the largest generator um, per, per unit for, for homes. But there's a debate underway in the, at the legislature right now as well to allow for more multifamily housing and apartments, more affordable housing to be built around train stations or to require each municipality to pay their so or to allow to build a so-called fair share um, in of affordable housing units in their community communities. Um, those bills, you know, are always hot rod issues at the legislature. So it remains to be determined if they will cross the finish line. And we have just three weeks left to see if they'll cross the finish line or they'll have to stop the process all over again for the next legislative session. Uh, Jackie Rape Thomas, thank you so much for joining us from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Walter Smith Randolph filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph, filling in for Lucy Nopithanchel. Joining us now is State Representative Quentin Williams, also known as Rep Q. He's chairman of the Housing Committee. Good morning, Representative. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. So, I mean, just give me your thoughts about what you've heard this hour so far about the no-fault evictions, about living in, in the hotels for seven months, um, about some of, the, some of the issues Sancha Ray has faced. I will say I'm so, so glad that we're not on camera um, because I can't tell you how upsetting this is. Um, so it's Sandra, um, thank you for sharing your story and for everyone that's like um, her in this in the situation. When I say I understand, trust me, I understand the consequences um, of when our legislature doesn't do its job. And the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the issues in which you laid out, um, what to do about the security deposits, um, the, the just cause of have, not having just cause evictions, um, not having a place to raise your voice um, when you are seeing 50, 60, 100% um, rate increases. Um, the fact that we do not have enough housing in Connecticut, period. We have solutions on the table right now. We have bills on the table that would help fix every single one of these issues right now. What we lack is the willpower. Um, from many of my colleagues. And I just, I can't tell you how infuriating and heartbreaking it is um, knowing that we could be working and fixing these things or at least be on a path to fixing it. And um, 
we're not, we're just simply having, we have, we're not doing our job. It's, it's frustrating. I mean, we have, uh, I said, uh, bill five, two, three, three would, a lip would, would require, um, good cause eviction. I mean, there was a, the, the property owner that, um, shared the story saying that we don't, we only, the, the, the margins are so tight. We don't want to kick folks out. Well, if that's the case, according to this very own property owner, why aren't we, um, adopting five, two, three, three at this very moment? According to their own values, their own words, um, I would I would encourage everyone to look at five two three four. Um, it's a bill that does several different things. In particular, would eliminate the application fees. Why are we profiting from people just wanting to get a home? It's not right. It simply isn't right. And five two zero five, which is that one hundred percent my top priority bill, um, because it's it would require uh, uh, towns and cities that have a population over twenty five thousand. Those are very uh, big towns and small cities and big cities, um, just so folks can have a voice. In my own town here in Middletown and Stonegate, um, numerous seniors saw 50% increases after our outside New York property owner who was listed as one of the worst property owners and slumlords in all of New York and New York City. They came in and raised their rents by 60%. And there's no place for their voice to be heard unless you go to court, which is both timely and costly. It is not right. And we have solutions on the table right now. I would just encourage my colleagues to adopt these ASAP. You mentioned landlords. We understand that not all landlords participated in Unite CT for a variety of reasons. Uh, we know they were also affected by the pandemic and the uh, eviction moratoriums. You know, there's a bill to help them as well. Do you think landlords need more help? Yes, I, I think I think I think there's a, there's a good balance now, and I have to give a lot of credit to. Other than ranking member of the Housing Committee, a representative uh, Joe Paletta, who was also a property owner, um, he talked about how successful Unite CT was for um, his business and for the properties that he owned. It was a great partnership. It put money in the hands um, of property owners and it gave support to folks that needed it right that second. It's definitely a, um, a, a safety net that I think we could continue. But in the meantime, we could also invest in things like RAP. Let's let's give. Our, uh, our residents the choice of where to live and get that money right back into our private sector. This is a, a, is darn near a fair market solution on a way to help protect our constituents and um, stimulate our economy. You mentioned willpower, lack of willpower. That's, that's what you said is why these uh, bills are still on the table. What would it take? What do you think, you're, you're a legislator, what do you think it would take for your colleagues to act on this i have no clue <laughs> i literally <laughs> have no clue and i hate to be so frank because it's so it's so frustrating i don't know after after we've seen this global global condition um where um we have let's say, a, a housing crisis uh, numerous people sick and and, and and literally dying um we've seen rents increase 30 40 50 100 percent i don't know what else it, it could take I get called. Matter of fact, the, the, the interesting thing about it is while I was waiting uh, to join this very interview, I have a constituent calling me right now that said they were they were on hold on uh, with two one one because they needed help and support. It is really difficult. I know how difficult it is. I I the other like I think a week ago or two weeks ago, I helped a vet, and it took me forty one minutes to be able to get just someone on the line to be able to talk about the process for to be able to get um, some support. I know how difficult it is. And for those that don't know my story, and I, we don't have enough time for it today, um, but I had a young mentee um, that we tried to get support. And 
between myself, the Youth Service Bureau Director, and a, um, a, a well-off friend, we'll call him. Um, the three of us all through 211 took us two days to get the young kid uh, housing, and it still wasn't supportive housing, and he was kicked out about a week or two later, and the consequences were literally death. So I, I, when I say I understand, I understand, and we need uh, to invest um, in um, our CAN network. We need to build more housing, which is the number one, that needs to be our number one priority to really fix the problem. But in the meantime, we have numerous um, stop gates that can help, whether it's uh, limiting the application fees, providing fair rent commissions, and having um, only just cause evictions. These are very simple things we can do in order to protect um, all of our residents here in Connecticut and stimulate and grow our economy. So it does not sound like you are very hopeful that the three different bills that we mentioned in this show are, are going to get across the finish line, at least this legislative session. Um, I am always hopeful, um, but hope is not a strategy. So we are working hard to get across the finish line. Um, I do think numerous things in 5234 will get across the finish line. And what's going to give another shout out to uh, the ranking member, Joe Paletta. Um, who we've done a lot of compromising on 5234 and 5205, the fair, um, that's the uh, one that would limit application fees and provide walkthrough information. Uh, 5205, the Fair Rent Commission, um, it is the t- absolute top priority. I'm going to be making the case uh, to my colleagues in uh, the Democratic Caucus today about how important this is. And it's going to be important for their own stories. They know how many calls they received uh, where a senior or a student, their rent went up. Uh, that's at 30, 40, 50%. Um, this is the way to be able to provide some relief. Um, so right. we are going to work our absolute hardest to get this across the finish line. And I am, um, I don't want to, uh, confidence not the right word, um, okay. but I am. We're running I'm, out of we're time. Gonna, we're gonna thank you. Yeah, we're running out of time. We thank you so much, Representative Keel. Thank uh, you for having me. Thank you. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Walter Smith Randolph, filling in for Lucy Nepothanchel. Tess Terrible is our producer. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>